Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we welcome Professor Karen Woody from the WNL School of Law to the Everything Compliance Gang. In this episode, we take a look at a recent decision by the CMA in the United Kingdom around Facebook and its changing of CCOs in the defiance of a CMA order, courtesy Jonathan Armstrong. Jonathan Marks looks at the role of internal audit in the board of directors. Karen Woody takes a look at a SEC enforcement action involving a chief compliance officer in the strong investment management case. Matt Kelly takes a look at Credit Suisse and Tuna Bonds. Jay Rosen considers how monitors evaluate whistleblower programs. Shoutouts and rants are at the end of this episode, which I know you'll enjoy. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome back to another episode of the now award-winning Everything Compliance. Today, we have the full quintet of Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, Karen Woody, Jay Rosen, and Matt Kelly. So, gentlemen and ladies, let's just hit it with, starting with Mr. Armstrong, what has been on your mind, Jonathan? Well, I've been intrigued by an announcement from the Competition and Markets Authority, the UK antitrust regulator this week against Facebook. And um, there's a sort of, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's an odd decision in a way, in that there are effectively two fines joined together, one for 50 million sterling and one for half a million sterling. And it's the half a million sterling bit that's intrigued me more than the, the uh, you know, than the far greater fine. So what's this about? Well, uh, as I say, the CMA is the UK's uh, antitrust authority, and they were concerned in June 2020 about Facebook's acquisition of Giphy, and effectively what they did is they made an order that the status quo should be maintained whilst the CMA looked into it and they didn't uh, sanction the merger and they didn't block it. They just said, let's effectively have a timeout whilst we think uh, what we're doing. And the uh, and Facebook took what the Court of Appeal called a high-risk strategy of not uh, respecting the CMA's uh, order to freeze things whilst the CMA looked uh, into stuff properly. So this fine isn't for doing the merger. This is a fine for not cooperating with the CMA. And uh, they were meant to file regular compliance reports with the CMA, and they didn't, and they didn't cooperate with the CMA's investigation. And that's what the 50 million uh, fine is for, the major part of the fine. And the CMA said that Facebook had fundamentally undermined the CMA's ability to prevent, monitor, and put right any issues. So uh, I, I think the CMA, in, in some respects, is, is going off-piste versus other regulators. In the US, for example, you will pay whistleblowers' bounties. That almost never happens in Europe. I think the CMA 
uh, to my knowledge, is the only agency in Europe that will play a, whistle a whistleblower a bounty. And I think this 50 million uh, a fine does show that it's serious about enforcing its freezing orders. But perhaps the even more intriguing bit is the £500,000 fine. And this was for changing its chief compliance officer on two occasions without seeking consent. Now, we don't know the full details of this fine yet. And what the CMA have said that they are going to do is they're going to prepare, if you like, a redacted version of their decision and tell us more about their thinking here. But speculating, what they seem to be saying is that the, uh, the proper function of a uh, chief compliance officer is in part to offer reassurance to a regulator, particularly when there's a state of flux in the corporation through its acquisition of another entity. And what it seems to be suggested is the CCO is there to offer some reassurance to regulators. And if we don't like the person that you appoint, or we don't have the ability to know that you've switched CCO, then that's something material to us in our investigation. And I thought that bit was new. Be interested in the panel's views on whether they've seen anything similar elsewhere. But that seemed to me, possibly, to be good news for CCOs. It's certainly something that they could potentially use for internal leverage to point to the fact that at least one regulator thinks that the CCO role is critical to good governance and they're also interested not only in the position of the CCO but their you know credentials and uh, and background we've had a vaguely similar case in financial services relating to bank of beirut where there was a fine um, but i think this one is is materially different and the fact that it's levied against uh, a corporation like Facebook whatever views you have on their governance they're not a Johnny come lately small outfit I think makes it more significant I think everyone's nodding their head so we're gonna have lots of questions for you Jonathan uh, let me just start the conversation then with you mentioned the reassurance that perhaps the CCO brings to uh, a regulator. But if you couple that with uh, what the <coughs> CMA said was a high-risk strategy, it seems that, that that trust, if I could even use that word, was was not present by the actions of Facebook. And does that warrant not necessarily a stronger sanction, but greater oversight, perhaps in the form of a monitorship? I think that might well be the case. And there are, the do, uh, as I say, details of the case are somewhat sketchy, but there does seem to be a requirement that somebody is responsible as a, as a monitor or quasi-monitor at both the acquired entity and the acquirer to ensure that that status quo is maintained pending the CMA's decision. So they're obviously... Uh, you know, they, they want there not to be a leaching of information between those two entities before the deal's approved. You know, financial data on advertising, for example, but w w would be one. And they seem to have relied on a robust CCO to make sure that that information barrier was maintained uh, between the two entities and you're exactly right that could be that could be performed by an external uh, agent it could be a monitor who who would look at that instead and it might be that in some cases where the acquired entity is smaller then an external agency might be the right person to fulfill that role but i think it's interesting that the regulator clearly expects both corporations to put processes in place to keep the status quo pending its decision. Uh, Matt, I'm sure you have a thought or two on this. What might they be? I, 
I do. And first, I will disclose that I'm going to throw up in my mouth a bit as I come to defend Facebook. But (laughs) uh, it does strike me that if the regulator does see the compliance officers, like if you if the CCO is providing assurance to the regulator, like that's a compliance monitor and go and appoint one yourself regulator. That is not really quite what the CCO was there for. Um, so I have a couple of issues with that. And like you know, Jonathan and Tom, what you two were just discussing, really, like I seems to me like a compliance monitor would be merited in this specific situation. But before the CMA gets carried away with this idea that the compliance officer is there to assure the regulator, like, not really, you know, you're not on the regulator's payroll. And if you want somebody to do that, we have a mechanism for it. Compliance monitors are not a new idea. Um, I also think this raises a larger question about whether other Regulators would want some sort of public disclosure of you have changed a chief compliance officer. And that's another one of those things where I think that's a nifty idea in theory, but you could take it apart and show how impractical it is in my mind in about 60 seconds. You could knock that idea down. Um, so I don't necessarily think that changing the CCO, like is that going to be an 8K event you have to disclose to the SEC? I, it's a nifty idea, but like I said, you know, I don't think that would work in practice. But I'll I'll stop for a minute and let others chime in. I think there's an interesting element to that. If you look at the Court of Appeal decision, as I said, the original order had come before the Court of Appeal earlier this year, and it seems that Facebook were paying 400 million U.S. dollars for Giphy, which was less than 0.5 percent of Facebook's annual turnover. So quite a small deal. And yet, the obligations were to apply to Facebook's entire business. So not just the 0.5%. And the order seemed to be that they weren't, uh, quote, to make changes to the organizational structure of the business. And, And that, I'm guessing, is the sort of the hook that the smaller fine is, is pinned on. And, and, and in some respects, I, I agree with you. You know, you can't, um, you can't sort of give the chief compliance officer a job they're not paid to do and put them in a, in a halfway house position. But at the same time, they're the regulator, and if you don't like the order and your Facebook, then you appeal it, as Facebook did. And if the appeal court decide to uphold the order, then and you don't obey that, then you get what's coming to you, don't you? Mm-hmm. Karen, do you have a question for Jonathan? Sure. My question goes actually to both Jonathan and Matt, with Matt's suggestion that at least in the U.S., maybe this you know change in compliance officer would trigger an 8K disclosure, uh, so a material event in a company's um, you know for a company that would require you know the markets to know about it. I think the the issue to me is you know really getting to this idea of well, how important is a CCO, and some of that goes to your organiza- organizational structure. I mean, the concept of a CEO CCO in theory is not relatively, you know, that long standing. So and there's a lot of I think vagueness around even what role they have. Are they the chief legal officer? Do they have a dotted line to the chief legal officer? Are they not legal at all? Are they next to the CEO? Are they in the boardroom? And so how you have structured that position in your organization gives some um, understanding of how important we see that role. And so whether a change in that role matters or at all maybe is determinative by where you have placed a CCO uh, at all. So that's some of my question is chief compliance officers is still sort of a nebulous concept to some companies, um, which dovetails into what I'm going to talk about when we get to me. But I, I, to me, that's sort of at the heart of this. We, sometimes we don't know who, you know, what role these um, professionals play in each organization. 
I mean, I think that's definitely the case in the UK, that, that it is relatively rare uh, to have a CCO. And there's obviously no big book that says who a CCO is and what they do. My, my gut feel, uh, it would be a, an absolute gut feel, is there would be, I don't know, 25% of uh, organizations would have a CCO in the UK versus their US equivalent. I think it's relevant to note that the CMA's own board does not seem to contain a CCO. Um, they uh, have a general counsel who attends board meetings and provides advice to the board, but there's no similar treatment of the CCO, if they have one, uh, at least according to the information uh, that they uh, provide publicly. So CCOs are relatively rare beast for UK corporations. So uh, I'd like, you know, like to pile on on top of this uh, CCO discussion. Um, as Matt said, the CCO does not work for the entity. And uh, I'm going to give a preview of my comments, but we had a situation where we were brought in to be a monitor on a merger within the telecom space. And it had one company acquiring another. And what specifically was at issue was there was something called lifeline services that needed to be made available to low-income populations. So we were brought on to be the monitor there. And what we ended up doing was secret shopping the entity. And we called up both in Spanish and both in English. We pretended to be low-income clients. And we wanted to see if those terms were going to be offered to us because they were in the legacy company and it was part of this acquisition. So a monitor was brought in. There wasn't anything that was wrong. The companies hadn't done anything, but it was just basically to look at merger terms. So it really seems that maybe um, the CMA is asking to have a monitor to come in, but what is the CCO going to do because the CEO isn't independent and impartial where the monitor would be? But I, I would just say, going back to this idea about would changing a chief compliance officer be like an 8K triggering event. So here's how I would knock it down is that in practice, still, for a large number of companies, the person who holds the title of chief compliance officer is the general counsel. Now, I understand it that if the general counsel leaves, yeah, that's an 8K triggering event, period, unless your board has lost its mind. But that's not the same as you know, should a compliance officer leave or is the general counsel leaving because of legal stuff or compliance changes? Like, that's messy. But the reality is there's, for many companies, there's a, somebody else is the chief of compliance issues, but they don't have the chief compliance officer title. So you're really going to have like an 8K filing that our senior manager of ethics and compliance has left. Um, that seems a little bit unnecessary to me. And also now the company has told the regulators and the public, that's who the head of our compliance really is, as a senior director. And now people are going to say, well, is that high enough? Shouldn't it be higher? A regulator might say that. And I could see corporate legal departments and boards getting very uncomfortable with that dynamic and that conversation suddenly happening that, you know, that we're going to wind up forcing a revisitation of should their title be CCO or not? Is that in practice? Well, the GC already is the compliance officer too. So do we have to split it? And you could game that out forever. And I just, I, it, like I said, it's a nice idea, but in practice, I see that breaking down very quickly. Okay. Well, uh, that's a pretty robust discussion on a, a very narrow and esoteric point. So uh, congrats to the five geeks uh, amongst us. So, uh, Karen Woody, uh, what has been on your mind? Oh, I am unfortunately or fortunately picking up exactly where we just left off, which is about chief compliance officer liability. Um, so... This is why it maybe is just a continuation of Jonathan and Matt's discussion here. But I, I do wonder if maybe the takeaway of what I'll say here is that people should just never call themselves a chief compliance officer. Um, so chief compliance officers, you know, in theory what they're doing, they're referred to as the gatekeepers. 
they play a, a crucial role in helping to prevent and detect and even often remediate any um, regulatory problems or even problems vis-a-vis internal policies and procedures. Um, and so what I want to talk about today is sort of this ever-present and perhaps growing risk of personal liability for the performance of the chief compliance officer role. Um, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, what role is that? What, where do these people fall? And I think that might be critical in this discussion because I, it's a question of are they um, can they avail themselves of maybe something like DNO insurance? Because we do see personal liability in some of these uh, enforcement actions against chief compliance officers. And the one I'm going to um, just highlight as an example happened a few years ago, but it was against uh, strong investment management, which is um, uh, it occurred in I think 2017. And in this case, uh, strong investment management had a president and sole owner, and that guy. Uh, his brother was the CCO. So maybe that fact alone should have been its own red flag. But the SEC brought an enforcement action against the entity as well as the chief compliance officer. And what the company was doing was essentially uh, what the SEC called cherry-picking trades. Um, you know, the CEO was trading securities in an omnibus account and then would delay allocating those trades to certain client accounts based on how well they did. And he was cherry picking the best trades for himself at his client's expense, essentially. So that was its own problem. But again, the SEC came on with an, an additional charge against the CCO. Um, and the gist of that was that that guy was ignoring red flags and had failed to ensure that there had were any policies and procedures that would have caught this, you know, misfeasance, malfeasance. So what what this makes me think of, um, and I this is my sort of torts professor brain here a little bit, which is these this allegation is an ex post nonfeasance issue, and by that I mean this is a. 2020 hindsight question about the failure to act. So a non-action that's triggering liability. And at least on this side of the pond, usually non-action does not ever give rise to liability absent an affirmative duty to act. The problem is compliance officers do have an affirmative duty to act in the scope of what their job is. But I think that that means it's a very sweeping duty um, and one that nearly suggests strict liability. Meaning, the minute something has gone wrong, that is a de facto allegation against a chief compliance officer for not catching it or preventing it. And this is a concept that's not new to the SEC. Um, the SEC has both said they're going to be kind toward chief compliance officers, but at the same time have still brought these cases. And about a year ago, one of the SEC chairperson or chair uh, commissioners, excuse me, um, made a speech about this. And of course, this was Hester Pierce, who always loves to make um, somewhat provocative statements. But this one I didn't think was very provocative. She sort of acknowledged this risk and anxiety coming out of the CCO um, and compliance professional sort of uh, bar entirely, or not even, you know, that entire um, industry. And in that sense, she was trying to lay out a framework of when maybe there are problems. Certainly, there are problems against CEOs, CCOs when they are personally involved in the mouth, in the fraud or whatever is going on. That's its own, maybe different category. Similarly, when they are hiding anything from the SEC or other regulators, that's also its own problematic situation. But the big one, and I think the one that uh, gets everyone's blood pressure up a little bit, is this other category where it is, as I said, this failure to act, failure to catch things. Um, not doing enough to prevent a violation done by someone else uh, and how that now risks sort of personal liability for a CCO, um, you know, despite, you know, any good intentions or any sort of uh, preventative measures they may have already had in place. So I, I think this is, again, dovetailing exactly on what Jonathan was talking about and, and some of the issues related to um, how, how we get our arms around the role of the chief compliance officer. So, Karen, is the decision that you referenced, it, would you say it's really an anomaly or could it pretend further liability? We should probably point out it was a 2018 decision 
and it certainly stands out from that. But within the context of the way the SEC has thought about CCO liability both before uh, that decision and really subsequently to that decision, uh, do we put it in the firmament, firmament, or is it something that just stands out there for reasons that are not in the opinion that, that we can't understand at this point? Well, I would just say I think the zeitgeist over at the SEC, certainly now um, with the new enforcement uh, division head, I, I don't think this is a SEC that's going to take its foot off the gas in terms of any type of enforcement action. And I think, you know, I would, I would also argue that sort of post-2008, everyone's looking to scalp somebody. And so when the CCO is the person standing there who should have caught something, that's an easy target. Hey, where were you? Where were you? Where were you? Where, you know, you should have done this. So I, I think there is a, a, a push to have, hold someone responsible. Um, and so I, I think the SEC will keep pushing on this, even as an add-on. You, like I say, there, there's an underlying fraud. There was the problem of cherry picking. They already were going after the CEO here, but there's almost like you know how we usually see. Oh, let's just tack on a mail and wire fraud, fraud charge for fun. Maybe we'll see that with the CCO. Like, hey, you know who we could also get as an easy one? CCO didn't catch this. Like, add that in. Maybe that's what we'll see more and more. I'm, I'm not sure. So, Karen, there is, of course, the well-known legal maxim that bad facts make bad law. And the facts in this case that we know of had some of the following. That the uh, CEO and CCO were brothers, yet had different names. The CCO changed his name because their father was a convicted fraudster, and he didn't want to be associated with his father. And both he and his brother had worked for their father in his fraudulent company, uh, engaged in securities fraud, and they started a new company after he went to prison. So um, uh, could there have been just some really bad facts here? Uh, Somebody at the SEC saying, this family is fraudulent? And uh, we're going to watch them very carefully. And it looks like they didn't have uh, a lot of um, they didn't have to look very hard. But could there be some just more egregious facts that we're not aware of? Or were the facts bad enough to to come to this decision on this case? Or as Matt just said, better call Saul. I think, yeah, you better call Saul is a great answer. Um, You know, I don't know. I agree. I think that, you know, you can't divorce law from the humanity in the context of all these things. So I think you'd be lying to say that that didn't factor into the SEC's sort of thought process once someone realized that. Um, But, uh, you know, and so for that reason, I think there certainly are more people uh, who have, or people who I think have bigger targets on their back um, to the regulators. Sometimes it's very famous people, but sometimes it's also people who, you know, they don't maybe get the benefit of the doubt, (laughs) which sounds like maybe is what happened here. Uh, okay, well, this is a fascinating case, and unfortunately, we're going to have to stop the geek part of this podcast before I go down that rabbit trail. So, Matt Kelly, we had a FCPA-type enforcement action this week. Uh, what caught your attention about it? Yeah, we did, and this was a fairly significant one, too. This is uh, The case was against Credit Suisse, the always beleaguered Swiss bank these days. Uh, that they agreed to pay a total of $475 million to various regulators in the United States, in England, and in Switzerland uh, for Credit Suisse's role in financing two loan arrangements for the Mozambique government in the early 2010s. These two deals were allegedly to help Mozambique develop its coastal infrastructure. I think one deal was to develop its navy. The other was to develop infrastructure to cultivate a tuna industry. Um, Of course, that was not the actual case. The actual case was that these were vehicles to uh, basically skim off the top and fund a whole lot of bribes because Mozambique is a highly corrupt country. Um, But what caught my eye really was both the SEC... Uh, and the UK Financial Conduct Authority, if you put their two settlement orders together, uh, they painted a very interesting picture of how Credit Suisse did have actually 
a lot of control activities that went on, and some of them I'll get into it. Like they found some pretty colorful stuff about the problems here. And yet, at the end of the day, Credit Suisse bankers said, we're still going to do these deals. And how that came to pass. Um, I, I loved it because, of course, there was an intermediary involved in arranging the funding for these deals, which the, uh, uh, so Credit Suisse raised a whole lot of money, more than a billion dollars in total, with one or two other uh, investment banks, but Credit Suisse was the lead. And then they were going to have those loans go to, to two newly formed state-owned companies in Mozambique, except the money was not going to go to those two newly formed state-owned companies. It was going to go to third company based in the United Arab Emirates, which is not in Mozambique. And it was run by an intermediary because this is the FCPA. So, of course, there's an intermediary involved. Um, and he received all the money in bank accounts in the UAE that allegedly were going to then go back to the state-owned companies in Africa. We should have a map and a whiteboard to sketch all this out. But that is where the, the vehicle by which they managed to skim off the top some like $200 million. Uh, there were several Credit Suisse bankers who were in on this, who were indicted and subsequently pled guilty. This has been a big mess for Credit Suisse, one of multiple messes that the bank has had lately. But anyway, uh, the, the, the killer here for me is that Credit Suisse had a compliance function which did actually perform due diligence on this intermediary, who we don't know who he is. But um, the due diligence report came back and said they, this man, the intermediary, had been described as, quote, the master of kickbacks. That is uh, one of the things that turned up in the due diligence report. Uh, another one was where a investment banker who worked at Credit Suisse, who knew this intermediary, uh, said that, all sources we know about were confident of his uh, past and continued involvement in receiving bribes and kickbacks, um, that he was, where was another one, an undesirable client, obviously involved in corrupt business practices. Uh, they discovered that in the bidding process for Mr. Intermediary to work with those two state-owned companies, there was no bidding process. Uh, he won the contract to source all this naval and tuna stuff through, quote, high-level connections with the Mozambican government. So, like, the whole thing stank to high heaven. And the compliance function at Credit Suisse, they found this out. So how did we get from this mess to they're doing a deal, and then eight years later they're paying half a billion dollars in penalties? Um, it really came down to what the FCA in Britain described as a really like a, a poor control environment. And I want to actually read off what the FCA actually said in its order because it's so telling. Credit Suisse conducted due diligence, including enhanced due diligence on the relevant entities and individuals. Uh, however, Credit Suisse's consideration of the risk factors was inadequate because it gave insufficient weight to the risk factors individually and failed to adequately consider them holistically. Credit Suisse failed to recognize that a corruption red flag will often be, rather than direct evidence of corruption or bribery, apparent from the context of the transaction or sector or jurisdiction or counterparty. Uh, and I'll give you a specific example is that they found this intermediary had done naval sourcing deals before that appeared to be clean, except those naval deals he was deal doing were in Europe as opposed to Africa, where the risk was much lower. And in Africa, it's much higher. And they already had other evidence that, as they said, he was a master of kickbacks. Um, so it really drove home this idea. The FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, had talked about how they lacked a holistic strategy for all of their compliance and risk assurance functions at Credit Suisse. Uh, which means various parts of it were under-resourced. Uh, they were all siloed. In 2013, when these deals were being done, the bank had only one regional anti-corruption officer for the entire EMEA region. Uh, that's not enough. Uh, they had a reputation risk process that would allegedly look at these sketchy deals and warn people. However, Credit Suisse had a total of three full-time employees dev devoted to reputation risk issues in 2013. And they weren't enough either. 
So you had these pockets of internal control activities kind of bouncing around doing their thing, but without that senior level commitment to say, let's put all of these efforts together in a logical sequence so that we can crack down on financial crime like we want to do. Without that, you just had a bunch of control activities happening like in silos. Uh, And it really was a good example of how a poor control environment where senior leaders aren't taking this seriously just gives you a whole lot of stuff that's going through the motions, a whole lot of window dressing, but it doesn't add up to an actual compliance program that reduces corruption risk. I had a few parallels, I think, to the WPP enforcement action where it was kind of the same thing. They had red flags that were being served up but the bank never acted on them. Um, And we could go on from there. There's a lot of other really interesting things in this case. We should probably talk about it more often in the future, but it's very instructive of how the poor control environment can leave you doing a lot of compliance things and they still don't matter. And we've seen that for many, many years, and we all wonder, how does that happen? Read the Credit Suisse enforcement orders because then you'll see how it happens. So, Matt, I have a a question. I was intrigued by the relevant enforcement agencies that brought this, Uh, the uh, FCA in the United Kingdom, uh, obviously the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States, uh, would you have, uh, I guess we typically don't see the FCPA suit, the FCA in cases around corruption. Any thoughts on the FCA being involved? Assume that's because Credit Suisse is a bank, and you know the financial services industry. Um, the, their chief regulator in London is the Financial Conduct Authority, so that's how they got into it. I would add two other points, though, about the regulators. Um, we have talked in the past about the SEC's emboldened new approach on we're going to have higher corporate penalties. So Credit Suisse is paying $99 million specifically to the Securities and Exchange Commission. Out of the $99 million it is paying, $65 million of that is a penalty. Only 34 is disgorgement. Um, so I think that, number one, is demonstrating the SEC is serious when it's talking about more penalties that it wants to see. Uh, and the other really intriguing thing was actually the third country involved here, the Swiss regulators, where I haven't chased down all the details of this yet, but the Swiss regulators, they are their penalty is not necessarily monetary, but they are going to put curbs on Credit Suisse's ability to issue loans and conduct activities in high-risk markets or with high-risk players, which I haven't really seen too much of that in the past. I suppose the closest analogy might be when the Federal Reserve put an asset freeze on Wells Fargo for its endless series of misconduct. But I I don't know if anybody else has seen something like this where the regulators are saying, no, you bank or business peer, uh, you can't conduct business in these high-risk areas until you get your act together. And I have to chase all of that down, but that was another thing that stood out to me. I I could say from a UK point of view, I think the FSA is relatively active in terms of anti-bribery controls, etc. I mean, historically, the FCA, the predecessor of the FCA, was active probably more than the SFO was. The SFO obviously then had a period of activity. Some would say that the SFO has, you know, gone back to its old ways of not doing as much as it did. And the FSA... Perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not. Uh, my sense is they've become a bit more active as a result. In July-ish, for example, they find um, uh, Willis just under seven million sterling for failures in its anti-bribery and corruption uh, control system. And one of the interesting things I think traditionally about the FSA slash FCA approach is that they can penalize without the fine without the foul so we have seen cases where the uh, financial regulators have said well there wasn't an episode of corruption or there wasn't an episode of bribery or there wasn't an episode of cybersecurity breach 
But that was down to luck. Your procedures wouldn't have stopped it if there was. And regulators don't give discount for luck. So, so in some respects, the regulatory regime is slightly different. I think they're more aligned since the, since the 2010 Bribery Act because we've got inadequate procedures, etc., which in some respects mirrors the FCA's regulatory regime. So my wild crystal ball prediction would be that if the SFO aren't seen to regulate financial services businesses more aggressively in terms of bribery and corruption, we'll see more FSA activity in this area. Jay Rosen, what has been on your mind? Hey, Tom, thanks for asking. So uh, what's been on my mind are uh, basically how a monitor might come into a situation like we discussed earlier in the Facebook matter. And uh, specifically, I would kind of just give some thoughts on how we would handle this assignment. So when a monitor is introduced into a situation, it usually involves a defined period of time, anywhere from 12 to 36 months, and then a specific mandate. So we might be asked to ascertain that merger conditions are being met or that a company has cleaned up any ethics and compliance missteps. Based on whatever order is agreed to, the monitor would have an initial meeting with clients to discuss the order and agree to an initial plan of action. Then the order will detail the terms of the agreement and set out such milestones as when an initial baseline report may be due. Next up, the monitor will, report, will prepare a request for information. And then here's the real meaty part of what monitors do, is that we also plan interviews with senior management and parties of interest, as well as focus groups with equal level staff. And the focus group is really where we get a lot of information, because when you put people together in a room, they tend to kind of... Uh, bring up different things, get people involved, and allow the discussion to really give you some media topics. After the interviews have been conducted, a monitor will prepare a baseline assessment. They'll get feedback from the client, and then when the parties are satisfied, it will be presented to the regulator. During the pendency of the monitorship, the monitor will assist the client in meeting its ethics and compliance goals and continue to be the conduit between the government regulator and the client. So how does the monitor help the entity being regulator, as regulated as well as the regulator? Some people are kind of confused by what a monitor does and how we work as the conduit between the interested parties. And after a regulator negotiates a settlement agreement with a company and decides that a monitor would be useful in resolving the matter, the regulator and the company begin to search for a potential monitor. Each group comes up with a short list of three candidates and if a monitor appears on both lists, then they're selected. Once that happens, the monitor enters a no man's land. At this point, the company may distrust the monitor as they think the monitor is only there to run a gotcha operation and go back to the regulator with more charges. Likewise, from the regulator's perspective, they fear that the monitor has gone over to the dark side and will now be exclusively advocating for the company. Both perspectives are too harsh, and the truth most likely lies somewhere in between. The concept of a monitorship working is based on introducing an independent and impartial third party who is there specifically to help the regulated company meet its obligations. The monitor's goal is to be there for the client and to help them achieve their end goal, which is getting out from under the monitorship. Slowly but surely, each side gains comfort with the monitor, and the process starts. In terms of the end result, an independent monitor seems to satisfy, satisfy the needs of both parties. The regulator now has a company that has met its compliance goals under the supervision of the monitor. The monitorship terms have been completed, and this has not cost the regulator any money, as the monitor is paid for by the company being monitored, and there is no additional manpower because the internal regulator only has to use their resources, but by bringing on the monitor, they can leverage that. And lastly, the company has a dedicated ethics and compliance resource to help clean up any compliance missteps and ultimately meet the terms of their agreement. From a regulator's perspective, this is a budget-neutral solution that allows the company to achieve its goals of the monitorship. And hopefully the company has learned from this process and continues to make strides moving forward. 
If not, we have a recidivist, as we just spoke about Wells Fargo before, and that's a whole different discussion for a future podcast. Tom? So, Jay, the question I wanted to pose, it really relates back to Jonathan Armstrong's presentation and, and Karen's a little bit as well. Um, Affiliated Monitors talks about an independent integrity monitor. And certainly, uh, Jonathan talked about perhaps uh, uh, an additional reason uh, the regulators will look to a CCO, and that's, that is some integ- independence and some integrity and some comfort for the company. But why are those two concepts of independence and integrity so critical for a monitor to do their role, uh, both uh, serving the regulators, but also serving the company they're working with? Well, I, I think that uh, traditionally in law and in art, uh, Lady Justice has been blindfolded and she has two equal scales. And to me, that represents the independence of the monitors. And uh, if you don't have that independence, then you have the weight going down onto one side or the other. So an independent integrity monitor comes in with a vested interest of helping the regulated client to achieve its goals. And at the same time, it wants to help enforce the letter of the law from any administrative agreement. So if you lack that neutrality, you're not going to get a good result. Jonathan Marks, as you know, Jonathan Armstrong talked about a case where the United Kingdom Competition and Mergers Authority uh, got uh, upset with Facebook to the tune of 500 million pounds fine for failing to notify the CMA when uh, chief compliance officer position changed twice. Uh, You uh, have been one of the most passionate advocates I can recall of the seriousness if a CCO leaves, up to and including that you've advocated it should be an 8K event. Kind of given all of this discussion, how does that tie into what you've seen or why you have said that for so long? And then the current Delaware Supreme Court move to expand the Caremark Caremark obligation of boards of directors. Well, I think we need to unpack this a little bit, Tom. And as you well know, I've been barking about not only the chief compliance officer, but the chief audit executive for large companies being an AK event probably for, I would say, at least the last 10 years now that I'm thinking about this. You know, um, it, it's, it's interesting where we look at, you know, how people are perceiving you know, these positions and these roles within the enterprise. So if you, if you functionally look at things within an organization, um, you know, if, if you have somebody at, the, at a senior level, you know, leave an organization, you know, under various rules, it could be one of those things that could require disclosure, an AK event, if you will, or a material event, basically what an AK is. <clears throat> I believe that when you start to look and unpack what's going on with regards to these, these, I'll call them care mark cases, just for, you know, just for simplicity, we have, we had Bluebell, which was the Marshawn case. We had Clovis not too long after that. Um, and we had Hughes, and, and now we have Boeing. And even though the DOJ uh, in Boeing stayed away from the board, um, if you look at the Chancery Court, uh, in, 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 a, in a lot of these instances, they have really come back pretty hard on the board for not monitoring and not really being involved with the compliance program. So, you know, I question everyone that says that this really shouldn't be, you know, some type of material event and say, well, where does, in fact, the chief compliance or the chief audit executive fit within the pecking order of the organization? And they are, if they are not senior leaders or they're not, you know, um, they're, they're not in that purview, then why are the SEC, the DOJ, and everybody else, every time something goes wrong, you know, have their, have their cannons pointed at these individuals? So I think it's an interesting discussion, but, you know, if you really look fundamentally as to what's going on with the way organizations are being built these days and, you know, from an enterprise, overall enterprise perspective, you know, who's got role, and the roles and responsibilities of folks and their reporting lines. Um, you know, does a chief 
compliance officer in every organization report or have reporting authority up to the board know? Um, does the chief audit executive know? Um, there are still a lot of companies and a lot of organizations that, you know, just don't have that reporting structure, but the ones that do, um, and when there are issues, it's usually, you know, those issues emanate, and we've learned this, and I can't really talk about a lot of this, but we learned this from a lot of the whistleblower cases. You know, a lot of these whistleblower cases, you know, that come in, and when we start to look at these issues, you know, it's where you have the chief compliance officer who's pounding their fist on the table saying that something really needs to be done, and, you know, it's either quashed, you know, internally or it's quashed at the board level, you know, also internally but a higher level. And a lot of these individuals don't want to be a part of that anymore because they're afraid of the repercussions, and, they, and rightly so. And so, you know, they wind up leaving. And why shouldn't the investing public be notified that there is some type of disagreement with the chief auditor executive or a chief compliance officer? I think that would make people think twice about thwarting an investigation or trying to bury a compliance or an ethics issue within the company that could materially impact you know, the financial statements or materially impact the strategy of the business going forward. So, you know, I, I, I vehemently, you know, and, and strongly or pick a word, you know, disagree with Matt and everybody else that says this really shouldn't be an event. I believe it should. Jonathan, you uh, also brought in the Delaware Supreme Court and Delaware, Delaware Chancery Court on four cases around board oversight. Uh, that yep. uh, basically the Caremark Doctrine brought forward that's been expanded out. Uh, I guess the, the question I would have, if uh, should, given the DOJ and SEC elevation of the chief compliance officer role, wouldn't it make sense or sort of make sense to me that that CCO would have a senior executive authority within the organization to report to the board so that the board could then fulfill its Caremark functions in oversight as, as they've exp been expanded by the Delaware Supreme Court. Would that be a, a fair assessment, or do you see things perhaps going in a different direction? No, Tom, I think, that, I think that's a fair comment. I mean, if you, look at, if you look at Boeing, for example, you know, their plaintiff, you know, the plaintiff's asserted breach of fiduciary duty claims against Boeing's directors. Specifically, you know, they talked about, if I can recall, Boeing, you know, Boeing not implementing a reporting system to monitor the safety of Boeing's airplanes. So now let's unpack that for a second. That's just one that one that one statement that I just made. Boeing did not implement a reporting system to monitor the safety of Boeing's airplanes. Where does that fall? Is that a compliance function? Is, is compliance involved in that at all? I don't know. Let's let's not answer that at the moment. Let's look at the second thing. Boeing ignored red flags in its duty to investigate. Okay? Boeing ignored red flags and its duty to investigate. Who's investigating? Are they, what are they investigating? Noncompliance with policies and procedures? Noncompliance with safety standards? Noncompliance with certain corporate governance, you know, rules and regs? Again, we don't need to answer that, but let's just keep going. And Matt, feel free to jump in at any time you'd like. Let's look at the third bullet point. The board terminated the CEO and allowed the CEO to keep about $80 million in pay and benefits which dwarfs the $50 million they set aside for the families of the 346 crash victims. So, you know, again, there's some incentive compensation in here as well. And, you know, if legal and compliance aren't involved in this, I, I really, I, I'm, I'm getting a little nervous here at this point. So, you know, this conversation today, Tom, is, is really concerning me. And, and Matt, I'm happy to come to Boston at any time and shake you a little bit if you'd like. You know I love you, but I'm happy to come up there and shake you. But, you know, if we look at the Caremark standard and what it really is doing, you know, it requires that the, that the direct, you know, it talks about the directors utterly failing to implement, you know, any, any reporting of information systems or controls or having implemented such a system of controls um, that's the directors. And they consciously fail to monitor or oversee its operations, thus disabling, I believe, themselves from being informed of risks or problems requiring their attention. Again, let's, we don't need to answer that or comment on that question, but if you break it down, disabling them from being informed of risks. So, again, when you talk about risks within a company, yes, management is responsible for risks, but we all know that's what it says on paper. Who's really responsible for monitoring risks within an organization and bringing it to management's attention? Well, geez, the last time I checked, it might be internal audit and it might be compliance. 
So, you know, where, where are we really going with all of this? And, you know, when does it really end? And why are we so afraid, Matt, of transparency? So, Matt, if you can answer those questions, you know, I'd be happy to debate you on this any day, all day long. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Okay, well, now we are to the whole reason we do this now for our fan favorites. Shout-outs and rants. So uh, we're going to keep the same order. Mr. Armstrong, do you have a shout-out and or rant today, or or are we still prone to melancholia? Uh, Not melancholy uh, today. I'm trying to keep it upbeat still. I want to shout-out to the graduating class of 2021. I'm off to my eldest daughter's second graduation. Um, My youngest daughter, uh, her graduation was via Zoom. Uh, I think a lot of uh, people at university have had a terrible couple of years. I'm uh, uh, acknowledging the fact that we've got a prominent uh, uh, professor on our panel now. But I think that it's been a somewhat isolating experience and some of them still aren't getting the opportunity to celebrate that. My graduation is a day that I still remember from many, many years ago. And it wasn't because I got to wear the gown and it wasn't because I got to wear a funny hat and hold a scroll. It was because the professor I like most at the university uh, took my dad for a drink and tried to get him, um, let's just say, trolleyed and, 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 and talk about whether I was as awkward a son as I'd been as awkward a student. And that um, memory has lived w- with me forever. And many uh, graduates have been denied that opportunity by the hideous COVID pandemic. And I know that some students listen to us and if there's five or six or seven i'm not the queen uh who have missed their graduation and they want to celebrate with their friends i'll stand them a bottle of something nice or a bottle of mango lassi or whatever they want but i meantime shout out to the graduates of 2021 and the graduates of 2020 who've been denied their opportunity to celebrate with their friends Karen Woody. I just want to second that. I will gladly go help people get trolleyed. <laughs> that sounds great. My shout out this week is to WeWork, which managed to get public somehow. <laughs> oh, that might be the topic for next week. But I mean, that that is, you know, they are really like the cockroach of, of companies that after a failed IPO that exposed an unbelievably unrealistic business plan. They found a SPAC, and they are now public, and not just public, but trading 13%, I think, above the IPO. Or the, I mean, they're doing, they're killing it. So, you know, cheers to them. <laughs> so for those keeping score at home, we now have uh, the master of kickbacks and the cockroach of companies <laughs> uh, as competing titles for this episode. Uh, Matt Kelly, do you have a shout-out and or rant for us? Uh, I have a double-edged rant today about the debt ceiling crisis in the United States. Uh, First edge goes to the Republicans for provoking this crisis in the first place. Uh, I know a lot of people say Republicans are using the debt limit to hold the economy hostage. I would go further than that. Folks, the Republicans will happily blow this economy's brains out over the debt ceiling. 
and leave millions of people either without jobs or facing higher interest on your mortgage or your education loans or your credit card debt or whatever uh, and will ruin tens of millions of 401k plans out there when the markets tank, uh, they will happily blow this economy's brains out if that means that they can acquire more power to shove an agenda that most Americans don't like down our throats, all while collecting their cushy taxpayer-paid salaries. Uh, this is reprehensible and shame on them, although I no longer think that you know they even care about what's good for America. Mitch McConnell certainly does not. Uh, however, the other edge of this goes to the Democrats when they will eventually have to raise this debt ceiling probably sometime in November before things go to hell in December. Uh, they should not raise the debt ceiling. They should end the debt ceiling once and for all. If they can solve this with just their own votes, then for the love of God, put this awful idea out of its misery and just abolish the debt ceiling. If we ever run up too much debt, there are plenty of creditors out there who will jack up the interest rates and beat us down, just like regular households, which do not have any legally obligated debt ceilings on our own operations. So this is going to be a mess. I would not actually be surprised if the economy does wind up with its brains splattered all over the country at the rate Republicans are going. But none of it, none of it needs to happen. Jay Rosa, do you have a shout-out and or rant for us today? Uh, I have a melancholy shout-out to Brandon Lee and all shooting victims on movie sets. On October 21st, Alec Baldwin discharged a prop firearm on the set of a Western he was shooting in New Mexico, unfortunately killing the film's director of photography and wounding the movie's director. According to the AP investigation from 2016, at least 43 people died on U.S. television film sets since 1990, and meanwhile, more than 150 were left with life-altering injuries. But even then, those incidents were likely undercounted. And while the misfire on the set of Rust is the most recent incident, it's not the first time a prop gun accidentally fired on a movie set. In 1993, actor Brandon Lee, who was Bruce Lee's son, was shot and killed on the set of The Crow with a prop gun. So here's an urgent plea that prop guns on movie sets are a dangerous proposition and that careful safety compliance steps must be observed at all times. So I have a shout out. I come not to bury Caesar, but to praise him in the context of the Boston Red Sox and the Houston Astros, who have engaged in one of the most spectacular offensive displays of power seen uh, ever in Major League Baseball. After a close game one of five to four, the Red Sox pounded the Astros 21 to six over the next two games. How did the Astros respond? Well, they outscored the Boston Red Sox 18 to three in games four and five. So how's that for American League offense, Mr. National League? We throw no hitters. Take that. And by the way, we're going to enjoy seeing the Astros beat the Atlanta Braves in the World Series. Jonathan Marks. Well, you know, Tom, I'm just the consummate curmudgeon, so it's going to be a rant. Um, you know, I haven't traveled in a while, and quite candidly, I'm still a little bit nervous based on what's going on, and people's just lack of disregard for, I think, the health and safety of, of a lot of us. But, you know, I have been traveling a little bit, as you can see by, you know, today I'm actually in a hotel room, you know, talking to you and everybody else on the, you know, on, on everything compliance, including Matt. Hey, Matt. Um, but, you know, my rant is, um, is really, you know, hotels right now. You know, they claim to be, you know, sanitizing and cleaning up and, and this and that and the other thing. How, how in the world can you charge me $450 a night when I don't have a towel, I don't have maid service, you know, or, I, you know, or any type of service? I can't order room service. There's not even hot water in my hotel this weekend when I got here. So, you know, while I appreciate the fact that, you know, everybody wants to be open for business, if you're open for business, remain open for business. Now, I'm not going to name the hotel chain, but they are a hotel chain that I've been patronizing probably for the last 25 years of my career. I stay here all the time. I go out of my way to stay here. But if you cannot service us, there is no way in God's green earth you should be charging me $450 a night. That's my rant. 
I want to thank the panel for everything. This has been a great, great episode. Uh, two of the greatest phrases we've had in everything compliance. So great job, guys. And we are under our noon Eastern deadline. So off to the races for everyone. We will look forward to getting back together in a couple of weeks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the award-winning Everything Compliance. I hope you'll join us again in a couple of weeks where we take up some additional topics of the day. You can find out more information about the panelists in the show notes. Also, if you're interested in the Hill Country of Texas, I hope you will check out my latest podcast, The Hill Country Podcast, where I take a look at people, places, and things in the Texas Hill Country. Everything Compliance posts bi-weekly on Thursday. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.